2012 to our second episode of Beyond the Lines, uh, Kilvington podcast for English students, but also for the wider VCE community. And this is our first episode dedicated to subject literature, which is really exciting. I'm even more excited to introduce Nathan Armstrong. Hello. Hello. Um, and Nathan is a senior literature and English, both IB and VCE teacher, um, currently at St. Leonard's College. Um, thrilled to do some more collaborating with, with you, Nathan. We've worked a lot together and I'm super excited. Yeah, fantastic. And especially to be coming together and talking about this iconic Australian text. Uh, yes, it is indeed iconic. Um, I should also say that this is recorded over Zoom, so if the sound lapses in and out a little, please bear with us. Um, yeah. All right, so we're going to start off by looking at one of the passages that we uh, will be looking at in my class, uh, uh, given that the first um, part of the first sack is uh, a focus on close analysis. And then we'll have a little bit of a chat about how you might approach a close analysis response to this passage. Um, I'm going to start by reading through it and um, then I'm going to get all of uh, Nathan's incredible insights so I can share those with my class and if others are listening, hopefully beyond out in the big wide world of VCE literature. Um, okay, so we're on page 103, um, chapter 7, and I'm just going to read and then we'll chat. At first, he thought it was the sound of birds in the oak tree outside his window. He opened his eyes and saw the eucalypts, their long pointed silver leaves hanging motionless on the heavy air. It seemed to be coming from all around him, a low wordless murmur, almost like the murmur of distant voices, with now and then a sort of trilling that might have been little spurts of laughter. But who would be laughing down here under the sea? He was forcing his way through viscous dark green water looking for the musical box whose sweet tinkling voice was sometimes behind, sometimes just ahead. If only he could move faster, trailing useless legs through the garden, he might catch up with it. Suddenly it ceased. The water grew thicker and darker. He saw bubbles rising from his mouth, began to choke, thought this is what it feels like to drown, and woke coughing up blood that was trickling down his cheek from the cut on his forehead. He was wide awake and stumbling to his feet when he heard her laughing a little way ahead. Miranda, where are you? Miranda. There was no answering voice. He began running as well as he could towards uh, the belt of scrub. The prickly grey-green dogwood tore at his fine English skin. Miranda, now huge rocks and boulders blocked his path on the rising ground, each a nightmare obstacle to be somehow walked around, clambered over, crawled under, according to size and contour. They grew larger and more fantastic. He cried out, oh, my lost lovely darling, where are you? And raising his eyes for an instant from the treacherous ground, saw the monolith black against the sun. A scatter of pebbles went rolling down into the chasm below as he slipped on a jagged spur and fell. A spear of pain jabbed at his ankle. He got up again and started hauling himself up onto the next boulder. There was only one conscious thought in his head, go on. A Fitzhubert ancestor hacking his way through bloody barricades at Angencourt, Agencourt had felt much the same way and had, in fact, incorporated those very words in Latin in a family crest, go on. 
Mike, some five centuries later, went on climbing. Oh, so dramatic. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and, you know, it's filmic, really. And yes. Peter really picked up on, and so does the Foxtel series, that, you know, we are, the Australian bush is so enigmatic, particularly to a foreigner. Mm. Um, yeah. What are your, what, what's, I guess, if I were a student approaching this passage, what would be the first thing you would do, Mr Armstrong? Um, well, I think you've got to, it really does situate itself as being quite a different passage from the large majority of the text where we're in a structured landscape where everything um, is either, you know, at the college or we're in the larger expanse of the Australian outback. This one sort of enters into a different terrain and it now becomes the landscape of the mind and the subconscious mm. and then how things we experience in reality can then sometimes seep in. Um, and I actually, while you were reading that, uh, Miss Murr found that quote that I was wanting to talk about from the lecture and the quote really it comes from page 154 and it's it says there is no single instant on this spinning globe that is not for millions of individuals immeasurable by ordinary standards of time a fragment of eternity forever unrelated to the calendar of the striking clock. So interesting. I've uh, put about four asterisks next to that quote too um, <laughs> in my copy and of the text. We know that time is a real big focus of hers and we're putting it on as our senior production and one of the features of the production is going to be time pieces and how the characters try to structure their world but then they're largely operating on the periphery of this really unstructured landscape which is that monolith, the, the rock. That's right. Uh, we've talked a lot about this in class already, the, the idea that... Um, the watches and clocks give way to a much more elemental version of time, which is, you know, suns and moons and yeah. nature and, and look, light, light and dark. Have you spoken in class about the final chapter that the editor cut out? No, I've been kind of saving that as a little. <laughs> cool, but but, 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 but I have to say, the last my last lesson, the students definitely wanted to talk about it. So what what were you going to? I just think that this, you know, this was probably a hint at something going strangely awry and then maybe it was sort of your hint of um, the subconscious taking over, weird things happening in the mind, and then, of course, you've got that really weird chapter at the end. Yeah. What are your yeah. thoughts on the publishing of that final chapter? Um, I'm glad it was cut out because yeah. when I read it, I thought, oh, this is silly. It, makes, it was like a Doctor Who episode tacked onto the end. Yeah. And it just made no sense in my mind. Yeah, if you were doing a choose-your-own-adventure and you ended up there, you wouldn't be happy, would you? No. <laughs> um, I think there's something about suggestion and then there's something about just full-blown giving everybody... Um, this is why. Yeah. 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 If we go back to the passage, I think um, it's really interesting to know, so who's talking to us here? Who's got access into his mind? We've had a speaker who's been talking about you know, the balustrades at the college, the lawns at the college, and now we're inside a character's mind. What I love is it, I, it's almost like a cauldron um, bubbling away, and you see that with the, the syntax and the length of the sentences. So you've mm. got use of a dash and then the short um, staccato, you've got an ellipsis here. So mm. there's a sense of, you know, that line, suddenly it ceased, cuts mm. in previous ones where we've had a dash and an ellipsis and we're in this dreamlike scape 
Yeah, so I, I love think the she's... way I love the way you've summarized that because I think that that acknowledging the way that form and words on a page can actually be mirroring um, things like tone or evoking a sense of um, you know mood is so important, especially with this text. We've talked a lot in class already too about the way that you know she occasionally, as a writer, allows a stream of consciousness to dominate her um, sentence structure. Um, and the yeah. way things run into each other and blur time as well. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at that last sentence of the first paragraph, the elongated nature of that sentence with the semicolon and the commas gives it that sort of we're seeping into his subconscious. And, you know, the rules of um, having a short staccato sentence don't apply here because I'm mm. trying to draw the reader in mm-hmm. with all those images the water growing thicker than the bubbles than the notion of drowning than the coughing and then the blood it's it's such a rich sentence and it feels a bit dreamic because she's not using punctuation to give us that staccato sentence mm. and moving on to the next idea it's lyrical isn't it it's um and i think that the um the rhythm of exactly what you just said you've got that staccato short three words suddenly it ceased punctuating um I guess the psychological landscape being explored and then we kind of transition to the reality of him coughing up blood that was trickling down his cheek from the cut on his forehead. So we're um, grounded back in some kind of reality. Yeah, I am sort of, I mean, if we go on, his obsession with Miranda is something that you would have to at least bring up, I think, in this passage. Why is this guy, Michael Fitzherbert, fixated on Miranda what was it he he he, does she mean is it something else he only really saw her for 20 seconds as she jumped across creek what is it yeah it's it it's a good point and perhaps it's Lindsay's way of throwing out the question what is what is it that is so um romantic or mystifying or worth obsessing over when we think about lost girls you know um, yeah I remember of... there's that you brought up um that movement the anti-miranda movement yes, yes. yeah it's sort of, you know is it the ephemeral uh, virginal blonde-haired white girl going into the australian bush and being eaten up by it is no, that what it, he's fixing it, well it's a it's a trope so it could be Lindsay's yeah. way of saying this i this trope of the lost child um, yeah. And perhaps even more specifically, the lost girl, um, the mm. lost innocent girl, the lost virginal girl, that trope um, and, you know, being kind of uh, pitted against the Australian bush as, you know, a, um, a, a force that, you know, cannot, you know, a force with which a reckoning is not possible, you know. Yes. Um, so I, I think that she's perhaps suggesting something about, obsessions with this particular trope and I don't know like I like to think that Lindsay was not ignorant of the First Nations presence and First Nations sovereignty over the land yeah I think it's got a bit of a saviour vibe to it as well what's that it's got a bit of a saviour vibe to it yeah yeah absolutely Um, I think interestingly in this passage um at first he thought it was the sound of the birds in the oak tree outside his window and he goes on to talk about yeah. the murmur of distant voices and laughter and trilling. Um, yes. And we've talked about several little references to drums or to sound off in yeah. the distance um, that could perhaps be um, a, a vaguely um, vaguely representative of 
an otherness out in the distance that could be seen as a representation of First Nations peoples. I don't know. Um, and I think um, in the second paragraph, you get that um, the European view of the land where it's... Oh, yeah. And, it's, and, and that that also is, I believe, a bit of a shout out to that Indigenous perspective because she's saying they're at one with the land. You view yep. it as foreign and slipped and jagged and spear and all the all those active verbs in the second pa- paragraph which just show a sense of animosity towards the landscape. Yeah, and the idea that he's saying, who would be laughing down here under the sea, under the sea being his imaginative landscape but parallel to the actual landscape, who would be laughing in this monstrosity that is nature who would be laughing in the face of the monolith well the people who are at one with the land might be happy to laugh in that moment and yet um you know his the ending to this passage is all about overcoming it's all about going on persisting and Mm -hmm. you know in latin um his english background is very very present in the end of that passage as well so we move from a kind of natural laughter and um, sound of could be the sound of birds um, and an at oneness with nature we go from that to blood to you know I, I think a, a plenty of representations of colonization yeah and look I think she's definitely you know we're about to go to picnic King the rock sorry on Tuesday and one of the things that we were talking to the children about is that the um, Indigenous people recognise this as a sacred space. Therefore, there are uh, rules and regulations around it, whereas we don't tend to have that it, from the European perspective. It's almost like in that last paragraph, it's go on and conquer, yeah. just like previous yeah. generations have. And yeah. I really think it's a shout out to her saying, even on a different continent, you've still got the same perspective of march forth, men. Yeah, and even looking at the verbs... Um, that he uses there as well there's um yeah. you know he's hacking his way yeah. um through bloody barricades that um plosive as well yeah it's a it's a really evoc- it, there there's lots of worlds within the passage which makes it a really good one yeah um and if the students break it up into those sections and say okay so why is this insignificant then they'll easily reach that word limit for the passage analysis. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to be said about setting as well as characterization and zooming out onto, um, you know, comparisons between the dreaming and a dream state too. Yes, mm-hmm. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it really just talks about um, the landscape has had an impact on him so much so that it's entered his subconscious. Sorry, I'm just finding off the cleaners. They get in really early here. Yeah. Um, That's fine. Yeah, so uh, to do with that, nothing sort of, like going back to that quote, something that may have happened on a Tuesday can come back on a Wednesday dream and it's infiltrated your subconscious. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like the way you started with that um, quote from page, oh, page 154. Yes, yeah, exactly that, three o'clock because I think that gives them a touch point somewhere else in the novel to kind of discuss this idea of fluidity and time in itself being yeah. enigmatic if we don't think of it as time on a clock or time on a calendar. There's another one on 224. Um, few things were unmuddled, firmly outlined as they were surely intended to be. Mm. One could organise, direct, plan each hour in advance and still the muddle persisted and then the final sentence of that quote is nothing in life was really watertight nothing secret nothing secure 
Yeah. And that's and that's the the chaos of the natural order. Yeah. Yeah, and is that um have you done much with Deleuze and Goodery and their yes, rising? We have, yeah, yeah. We've yeah, we spent um considerable time on that this week. Um, yeah. and I think there are a few aha moments, but for sure I I I can see both of those quotes feeding into a Deleuzean reading. Yeah. Um yeah. Well that was I think very it's also- helpful. I think it's also, not that they would in this passage pit Michael against Albert, but you really do have this kind of toffee-nosed English person in the middle of the Australian bush having a marvellous experience while his best compadre is the more lower class trying to find agency. Yeah. So and in that perspective as well. Yes. The, um, and the performative nature of both of them I think is interesting too and the way that their, their worlds colonise each other. Yeah. In a sense. Yeah. Um, and in terms of transformations, I know that a lot of my students um, couldn't access the Foxtel series for whatever reason over the yeah. holidays. Um, what's your hot take on the, um, the miniseries rather than the Peter Weir film? I've sort of pitched it to the class that they can be writing yeah. about either with their transformations inquiry, but um, what do you see the benefits of choosing the Foxtel series over the Peter Weir adaptation? Well, it's the, the Foxtel series is a bolder reimagining, you know. Certainly in episode one, they take some large liberties with Mrs. Appleyard, things that just clearly aren't in the text. It's hilarious. But the, it? students are, the students are able to talk about how such things are derived from certain lines mm. um, and why possibly, given it's Foxtel, given the television that we currently have, why such liberties would have to be taken. Yeah. So even if they look at it and go, oh, well, that's just not in the text, that's a really big stretch there's a reason for it. And so I don't think it, there's nothing in the, the series that I see and look at and go, oh, well, that was too far. I can yeah, see I where agree. they They basically set it up for the streaming generation. Yeah, yeah. And I think a discussion and, of form and how um, Peter yeah. Weir's adaptation was specific, was created around a kind of cinematic um, mm. kind of feast that was yeah. all about sound and all about, um silence as well as as yeah and i think you could probably argue that you could argue that we probably didn't stray enough from the text yes the fox does too much but equal both are equal you could uh, you could do a really good presentation on either of those yeah yeah i agree well thank you so much we will do this again um and yeah i have I'm really looking forward to working with you more. I haven't told the students yet, but uh, Mr. Ma- uh, Mr. Armstrong and I are going to be working closely with um, marking your outcomes as well. So um, looking forward to doing that and we will do this again soon. Awesome. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.